All right. Uh, hey, we're actually continuing in our series, our message series on the book of Nehemiah. And what we've been exploring over the past few weeks is how Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. But Nehemiah was an Israelite, someone who came from the nation of Israel. But this was a people group that was a minority group that was exiled. So if you can imagine, they're a minority group. They've been exiled. And somehow he curries the favor of the king to go ahead and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that had been decimated uh, for many years. And so the book of Nehemiah has been the story of this guy named Nehemiah who has this burden on his heart for God, and somehow he's able to mobilize a group amidst so many different challenges from enemies outside of them, the nation states that surrounded them, as well as even infighting that occurred within their own community, and somehow they're able to rebuild the wall. It's really this extraordinary message of faith, of of resilience, and perseverance. And so Nehemiah, what we've come to in in this part of the story is Nehemiah, during this time, they've rebuilt the walls, and now all of a sudden, there was a worship service or a party that was thrown because of this big, massive celebration that happens in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, after this kind of celebration where they're eating good food and drinking good stuff, they essentially they come to this moment of repentance where they're coming before God. And in chapter 9, it's a story where, chapter 9, they're basically saying, God, the story of us following you as the nation of Israel, through all the ups and downs that we've been through, from the time of the book of Genesis, of the creation of the world that we believe in, to the time of Exodus, to the time of kings and prophets. It's been so up and down, but the story of God has been the story of your faithfulness. How God, and what we talked about a couple weeks ago, is this big God theology. There's this view that God is the one that's the author of this story. And one of the things that we talked about is what it means to repent is actually to remove ourselves from the center of the story. And in, instead of having ourselves be at the center, we have our spouses at the, and I'm just kidding, not to, our spouses. Um, we have God at the center of this story. Like, what does it look like for each one of us then to, to recenter our lives, the frame that we have in the world around us, that God is the center? Now, if you're someone who's not a Christian here today, we're so glad you came. And I know that sounds like a, a really difficult and weird message to say, but that's what we believe, that as Christians, what we're trying to say is, um, like, what it means to be a Christian is to say that I'm not the center of my story, that God is the center of my story. And if God is the center of my story, and if this God is a good and benevolent God, then we're going to let God take his place. Now, in chapter 10 that we just came to, though, uh, notice there's a lot of religious language that's being used. Now, what's happening in chapter 10? Well, check out how chapter 9 ends. Again, chapter 9 was about the story of God. Look at what it says. This is in view of all this, in view of all what? Of everything that was talked about in chapter 9. In other words, the story of God and his faithfulness from the creation of the world to the time in Exodus, to the kings and the prophets. God has been faithful. He's been good. He's been forgiving. And so in view of all this, look at what it says. We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. In other words, they're basically saying, in light of what God has done, we are making a commitment today Now, look at the rest of chapter 10. Check out how it unfolds. It says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, let me pause there because some of you are like, I knew it. Bible is so ethnocentric. I can't believe it's talking about this. Well, just keep in mind that Moses, for instance, was someone who married outside of the Israelite family. So it's not necessarily kind of this ethnocentrism. The reason why he talks about marriage, especially in this way, is because what would happen to the people of God is instead of worshiping God, they would worship things other than God. And so this was one way for them saying, if we want to remain committed to worshiping God, 
God, this is one of the things that we're going to put in place. This is what we promise to do. So it's not about ethnocentrism. Because again, someone like Moses, for instance. Um, it says, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working in the land and will cancel all debts. Now, what is he talking about there? Sabbath, practicing a 24-hour period to stop and to rest uh, and to, to withdraw from work was a way that distinguished the people of God by saying, like, listen, all these other uh, nation states around us, they define their sense of worth by our pro- productivity and how much we will work. But the people of God are a free people who get to experience the freedom of having a 24-hour period to stop and to rest. I mean, what a gift, right? So now what's happening is, do you see, in light of all that chapter 9 talked about, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, what's happening is the people of Israel are now, as they're rebuilding this community, they're saying, you know what, we're about to basically put an anchor in the ground. And we're saying, this is what we're going to be committed to. We're going to be committed to having Jesus or God at the center of everything that we do. So check this out. Look how it continues on. He says, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths. In other words, with our money even, it's going to be so oriented not around ourselves, but around God. And notice, it says, we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. And it talks about kind of redistributing this wealth to those in need. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is essentially what chapter 10 is about. The people of God, in light of chapter 9, where it talks about the story of how God has been faithful. Now, it's the people of God basically saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to promise to do this. We're going to assume this kind of responsibility. And moreover, this is what we're going to commit to. We're not going to neglect God anymore. It's almost like they're making this commitment to essentially saying, God will take God's place. Considering the story of all that God has done, God will take uh, place in our lives to be preeminent amongst everything that we do. And this is the invitation. Now, what exactly is happening here? So in the ancient Near East, there was a way that agreements were made, not only between two separate parties, but also when it came to governments and the way that kingdoms were established. And and so essentially, the way that um, agreements were made is through something called covenants. Now, covenants were different than contracts. Contracts are things that today, in today's modern world, you sign a paper and you go to the courts and you basically say, look at this contract that we signed. But covenants were generally framed in this way. And throughout the Old Testament scriptures, which models actually the ancient Near Eastern world, covenants were usually made between kings and vassals. (laughs) the vassals that were subject to these kings. And oftentimes, the way that these covenants worked is, the covenants would basically say, this is what the king has done. This is the way that the king is glorious. This is the way that the king is the one who deserves to be honored and worshiped. And then the vassals would come back and say, in light of who you are, king, this is what we will do to subject ourselves to you, your vassals, to serve you and honor you and the kingdom that we're following. This is what the vassals would do. Kings and vassals, and then a covenant would be made. Now, here's what's interesting. A covenant, to make a covenant in the Hebrew, uh, it's the word berit. Now, berit in the Hebrew is this word that actually means to cut a covenant. 
Isn't that interesting to cut a covenant? Why does it have that connotation of cutting? The reason why is because whenever this covenant was made, remember I told you contracts were done. The way that we do it, we sign contracts. And then we have this sheet of paper that we go to uh, the law courts and we say, look at this. This was a contract that was signed in writing. Well, back then, covenants, the way that these agreements were made is they would actually cut to the shedding of blood. And what would happen is vassals would often, they would offer sacrifices in front of the king and basically say, if I don't hold up my part of the bargain, may the same thing that happened, this bloodshed that happened to these sacrifices, may the same thing happen to me. Some of you are like, thank God we don't do covenants anymore. I like contracts a lot better, right? I mean, this is extraordinary. So, in chapters 9 and chapter 10, it's framed like a covenant. That's why chapter 9 is basically about God, his faithfulness as the king. And the vassals, chapter 10, is this moment where they're saying, we're going to make a commitment, God. We're going to make this covenant to you. We're going to say, we will assume the responsibility of not neglecting your house. We will assume the responsibility of having you be the center. We promise to do this. We will be intentional and committed to following you. It's, it's almost like this, this community is being rebuilt, and it's this way of reaffirming, basically saying, God, you will be the center, and this is what we commit to as this covenant is being spoken about. Now, this is the frame of chapter 9 and chapter 10, an oath that's being made, and this idea of offerings being made as a result of saying, this is the covenant that we are making. Now, as I was thinking of a modern-day example of what would this look like, the same kind of intentionality and commitment that the people of God are making to say, like, God, we will be intentional about this. We're not basically just going to be adrift in some sort of way of minding our own business. Instead, we realize that today is a day where we want to be centered around you, um, as I was thinking of an example, uh, I thought of this logo. Um, Venice High School is where I went to high school in Los Angeles, California. And uh, Venice, our mascot, uh, his name was Gunther the Gondolier. You get it, Venice? So we are the Venice Gondos. Anyhow, our, our school was part of the Los Angeles Unified School District. And back when I was in high school, we actually had the highest dropout rate in all of Los Angeles Unified School District public schools. So the freshman class was anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 people. Our senior, our graduating class was like 420 people. So like we had massive dropout rate. So I remember kind of right around this time, like they introduced this new phrase that we were going to say. Like Gunther, uh, the gondolier. He basically, it was basically, our principal would talk about this. It was, we are a community that's rowing, not drifting. <laughs> rowing, not drifting. Now, here was the image that he was talking about, right? That we are a people and we are a school that's committed. We're not simply adrift like those other schools in New York City. <laughs> we are people who are rowing. We are intentional. We are committed. We have a pathway forward. You know, as, as I was thinking about kind of this image and the, the image of what the people of Israel are doing, they're essentially saying this is what we want to commit to. We want to be a people who are, are rowing and not drifting. We're a people who are committed and intentional. 
uh, you know, in a couple weeks, I'm actually teaching this course on dating and relationships. And the course curriculum is this extraordinary curriculum. And one of the principles that's found in this course um, is this. It's that premarital insight in change. So before one gets married, it's actually easier to change uh, than marital insight and change. Now, isn't that interesting? That, in other words, and when we talk about dating and relationships, it's easier to change in a relationship before one gets married. Why? Because the cement is not so hardened yet. Now, here's what ends up happening. And for those of you who are married, you know this, right? Like, in the beginning stages, you're still kind of wooing each other. There's this relationship. But there's this thing called homeostasis where all of a sudden you get married, and then it's about the lowest common denominator of what we can get away with, right? Like, let's just kind of ease into this kind of relationship, and the cement gets a little bit harder. And so one of the things that we talk about in this course is, what does it look like for each one of us, then, to take seriously this idea of intentionality? Now, here's what else we talk about. In our marriage courses, now, some of you are like, I'm definitely not getting married then, right? Like, but, I mean, here's what we talk about in our marriage courses. What would it look like for, for married couples to actually say, you know what, instead of being a people who are just adrift in our relationship, which happens to a lot of married couples after marriage, what would it look like for us to actually cultivate the kind of relationship that is not only faithful to each other, but passionately in love with one another? Now, that takes hard work, energy, all sorts of commitment, doesn't it? It takes rowing, not drifting. See what I did there? Rowing, just try to stay with the metaphor, everyone. <laughs> I mean, but, but this is the idea, right? And what does it look like for every, any one of us to actually be so committed that we're intentional and conscious about steps that we're taking towards wanting to say, I want a great marriage, I want a great relationship, however long I've been married. Now, that's one metaphor for just marriage, but what, what would it look like for each one of us when it comes to our faith disposition to say, today, not tomorrow, not 10 months from now, but today, what if today could be the day that you and I could make a commitment to saying, God, I want you to be at the center. Now, one of the ways that we talk about this in our church is one of our discipleship courses called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We talk about crafting a rule of life. Now, a rule of life is this term that's taken from monastic communities when they realized that people in churches were not taking seriously following Jesus. They created these monastic communities. I realize this is a generalization, but they created these communities where they said, we want to be serious about our faith. And so what they did was these collective communities would then come up with a communal rule of life. And the rule of life was a common set of commitments that the group would make to saying, we want Jesus to be at the center. We want the love of God to be at the center. Now, here's one way that we do this. I'll show you this framework that we often use. And if you take our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Discipleship course, um, a rule of life, if we could go to the next slide. Um, we talk about different categories like work and prayer and rest and relationships. What does it look like? And notice what's at the middle of this rule of life. It's the love of God. It's saying we want God to be at the center, the love of God expressed to the person of Jesus. And then we orient all of our lives, our prayer, our work, our relationships, our rest. Everything is oriented around the love of God. Now, and, and what we do is we invite people then, what would it look like to, to have practices in our lives so that the love of God and that God is at the center of our lives? Now, a good friend of mine named Red Sevilla, he uh, was actually, he 
showed this rule of life that I found so compelling. So if we can go to the next slide. Um, he has a list of practices when it comes to prayer, rest, relationships, and work that is a rule of life. But notice the difference between the rule of life that was shared earlier where, remember what the center was for a rule of life? It's the love of God. But he wanted to share this document to share basically like most of us, when it comes down to it, whether you're a Christian or you're not, at the end of the day, what is the center of our lives? And for most of us, it's the American dream. Now, coming from an immigrant family that my parents immigrated here and growing up in this country, like so much of it was, was really driven around the American dream. The American dream, of course, was to work hard and be successful and make a lot of money so that your, your kids don't suffer as much as you do. I mean, that was the American dream. And that is the American dream. And that was the allure of moving to the United States of America. Now, here's, here's what ends up happening for us. When it comes to the ru our rule of life, what Red was pointing out was if the American dream is our center, we'll actually go through each one of these. Look at prayer. I know it might be a little difficult to read, but on the top left of prayer, it says, um, our commitment when it comes to prayer is to go to church maybe one to two times a month to get my kids into the best schools to pray for my family every day, buy a beautiful house or a condo, hopefully in Chelsea, but if not, Jersey City, if not, maybe a little further out in New Jersey, and then retire in the Poconos, and then read a devotional maybe one to two times a week. I mean, that, that's basically, now I realize some of you, like I read, read that often, some of you are like, man, that person's killing it, <laughs> killing it when it comes to their life with God. But isn't it true? It's kind of like, oh, yeah, like I'll, I'll fit it in where I can. Now, when it comes to rest, it's take three weeks off a year. Try to take a day off on Saturday. Enjoy as much fun as possible without sinning. Now, that's important, right? I mean, most of the time when people are asking me, like, hey, so what is, what are, like, God's heart for this and this? They're basically asking, how much fun can I have without sinning? I mean, isn't that the goal? And then go on one great vacation a year, a cruise, a resort, or to Cancun, and then play in a softball league. Like, that is the dream. If I could just play in a softball league, maybe in Central Park, then I will have arrived with my firm or whatever else it is. Uh, now, when it comes to work, be available for work 24-7 via email and phone. Read a motivational book monthly, Move up the ladder in my work. Make as much money as possible. Build up my retirement to leave my job by 60 years old. Now, I realize Gen Z, like I should probably shift that, like retire by the age of 25. I get it. Gen Z, I know. I know how y'all roll. Talk to you all enough. I get what you're trying to do, right? Serve at church if asked, right? It's only if... But otherwise, I mean, this is the goal. This is the American dream. Relationships. Keep my wife or my husband happy. Go on a date night one time every two weeks to invest in our marriage. Attend all sports events of my children. Hang out with buddies weekly. Visit my mom or dad or in-laws each month or, or just a phone call perhaps. And then lastly, keep up my Facebook page. Now, 
I realized that was for first service, a little older crowd, Facebook. I realized it should be Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever. Get it, Gen Z, you know the story. But this is the American dream. Now, some of us, we look at this list and we're like, what's wrong with that? You just described my life. But, but do you see the orientation? I mean, isn't it different? The, the real true north is not like a life that's, that's submitted and like committed to God in this covenantal way. Instead, it's a life that's basically like, yeah, yeah, you know, God, I can fit him in whenever it's convenient. But what would it look like for each one of us to do an audit of our own lives? To say, God, I want you at the center. Not the American dream. Not my career. Not my ambition. Now, not that these things aren't important, but what would it look like to say, God, I want you at the center, not my children, not my spouse or my future spouse, but you. How would that fundamentally shift each one of us? Now, I realize, again, for some of you, you're not Christians here, but the same principle is true. What is at your center? Is it the American dream? And what's been so left wanting for so many of us is how all the goals of happiness and success, is it really the American dream that gives these things? Now, as I was thinking about an audit that each one of us could take on our own lives, and the same is true for me to take an audit on my life, if we could go to the next slide. We think about our prayers and what we pray about. If you think about your ambitions and what you count as being the primary ambitions of your life and mine, our time, our energy, where our money goes, If we were each to take an audit of these things, the things that we pray about, the things that we are ambitious about, our time, our energy, our money, where our money goes, these are indicators of this audit of each one of our lives. What really is at the center? Is it the American dream? What is it? Is it this relationship? Is it our anxieties? Whatever it might be, what is at the center? You know, one of the the most revealing things about being a parent of young kids right now, our kids are 11 and 7. And so our son, David, obviously, David, no matter what we tell him, he is able just through osmosis to see what we value as a family. And so I remember talking to David uh, recently. It was a few months ago. I was like, David, hey, what do you think are like the most important things to mom and dad, you know? And uh, so I I wanted to ask him this question, just just get a sense of like... uh, what he perceives. And I was, you know, I'm like, David, what do, you, what do you think is the most important mom and dad? And he says to me, without hesitation, he's like, math. <laughs> Serious? Like, math. I was like, what do you mean math? And he's like, he's like, you're constantly talking about finishing my math. That's like, it's the thing that you guys talk about all the time. And I was like, what about God? What, what, about, what about, like, prayer and stuff? Like, what, what about God? What do, you, what do you think? He's like, no, math. <laughs> All right, math. I mean, I was so taken aback. Like, I, and he's 11 years old. And it was like this moment of, like, oh, my goodness. Because if you were to ask me about my parents, you know, 30 years ago, what was most important to them? I would probably say math. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? What's, you know? And, uh, 
but it was, it was like this moment for Tina and I. We were just like, really, math? Like, that's, that's really what you're perceiving from us? And he's like, yeah, I hate it. I hate math. Like, oh, wow. Maybe if we get you to hate it enough, you'll love God more. No. <laughs> but it was just this moment of, like, th- there was an audit on our family. Like, what, what, really, what really matters? When it comes to our prayers, our ambitions, our time, our energy, our money. What really matters? And, and here's the thing, right? We can talk till we're blue in the face about how God is at the center. He's the most important. God is the most important thing in God's ways and his will is the most important thing for my life. Gloria James, who's the mother of LeBron James, who LeBron quotes all the time. One of the things that she says is, don't just talk about it. Be about it. The reality is, if we were to take an audit, not on what we say we value, but really what we value, if we were to take an audit of our money, if we were to take an audit of our time, our energy, our mental space, our ambitions, our prayers, where would we land? See, the invitation of the people of God in this moment for Nehemiah and for this group of people that have just rebuilt the wall, they're basically saying, God, today we are going to be a people that row and not drift. We're going to be a people who put the stake in the ground, and we're going to say we are committed to this kind of life. Committed. We promise to do this. We will make this a priority in our lives. We will not neglect you. And the invitation that Nehemiah is making and the people of God are making in this covenantal way, saying, God, we want you to be the center. What would be, as you were to take an audit of your own life, maybe you've come to the city and you're on this fast track and you realize, oh, wow, I am more driven by the American dream. And not to say that parts of the American dream are bad. It's just that that's what's taken, the seat of the center. And the question is, is, if each one of us, when it comes to our prayer, our ambitions, our time, our energy, and money, were to come before God, what if the invitation for us today was to say, yeah, I want God to be at the center. I want my life to be reflective of a life that's oriented around God. Now, that is a heavy and beautiful invitation. And what would it look like of all the places that you could be today? You could be going to Carmine's in Times Square and having lunch right now, but somehow you ended up here. Well, that was a bad example because most, most New Yorkers don't go to Carmine's in Times Square on a Sunday afternoon. I get it. That's tourist. I get it. But like, I mean, you could be anywhere else, but somehow you're here today. And what if it's because today was a day when the invitation was made for you to put an anchor in the ground and say, God, I want my life to orient around you. I want my prayers, my ambitions, my time, my energy, my money to be a life centered around you. Now, here's what I realized. Some of you are like, Drew, wow, you're really laying it on thick, man. This whole like 
this guilt-driven, it's really working. We feel really guilty right now. And I realize I'm taking an audit on my soul right now, and I'm not sure if, and you're right, Drew. Like, yeah, I want to commit to God, or else God's going to smite me, or whatever else it might be. And some of you, maybe you don't come from a religious background, and you realize you're like, I knew it. I knew it. That's what churches are all about. There are uh, churches that they just want me to give my money, and they want me to be a person who is devoted to something other than my own life and my own ambitions. And the, the reality is the whole world, the way that the world works is most of the world works with this belief that if you work harder, if you do more, then God or the gods will love you. <laughs> or this society will love you. Most of the world that we live in is based on this mentality that, yes, if I work hard enough, and some of you, even as you hear this message, you're just getting exhausted because you're like, I can't believe I knew it. He's going to try to guilt trip us into being these like radical kinds of Christians. But you know what's so unique about the Christian story? Because it's utterly unique. It's so different than not only the ancient religions of the past, but even the modern religions of today, of success, of happiness, of all these things that the world tells you is most meaningful. See, remember I told you about that the, in the ancient world, the way that these covenants were done was there was kings, and then there were vassals. And the vassals would present these offerings and basically say, if we don't keep our end of the bargain, if we don't take responsibility like we said we would, if we don't promise the same way, we don't fulfill the things that we promised that we would promise to, then may the same things that's happened to these sacrifices happen to us. Now, here's what's so extraordinary about the Christian message. You see, because that kind of religion is a religion that says, yes, you better earn it. You better be good. You better prove yourself to be loved by God, to be a person of success. And yet here's what the Christian story says, is that God the king, who deserves all glory and praise, would recognize that the people, the vassals, would continue to not be perfect. They would make mistakes. They would continue to fall away. So what this king would do is he would send his son, Jesus, to come into the world, to die on the cross, and to shed his blood. Why shed his blood? As the sacrifice on our behalf, once and for all, that Jesus would become the sacrifice for us to demonstrate that the kind of God that God is, he's not only this big, great, powerful God, but he's a God of great love. <laughs> that more than punish or to smite you for the mistakes you've made or for the ways you don't measure up, this God would rather send his son to give his life for you, to show you just how deeply he loves you, how he is committed to you. That no matter what you pursue in life, no matter what ups and downs you go through, God will be unrelenting in his love and his pursuit of you. He will consistently be chasing you and showing you this is what God is like. That even when you may me not measure up, even when you feel so unfulfilled, even when you may be in the drudges of not feeling happy or successful, there's a God in heaven whose love is for you, whose security is with you. And if you need any proof of that, look to the sacrifice in this covenant who sacrificed himself for you. This is Jesus. Look what the author in Hebrews writes. Look at what he, 
He says, he says, but when the Messiah, this is Jesus, arrived. Now I realize there's going to be a lot of religious language here. The high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place, once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more. The blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives, inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can all live all out for God. I mean, isn't this beautiful? See, it's not shame that drives the Christian story. It's not, you better do this to honor your king. It's, look and behold, the king who would give his life for you. The one who loves you enough, he would do anything for you. This is the God who loves you. Will you now surrender to this love? Will you now orient your life around the the God who has always loved you from the start, who's been chasing you? Will you row and not drift? Will you come and center your lives around this God?